every day you wake up, you show up for your treatments, you show up for all the visits, you know, my body is there showing up and now it's for my time for my mind to get on board. I'm going to support you. You supported me in so many ways in the past. You, I'm going to believe, did not choose cancer. Cancer chose you. Cancer chose us because we would not have made that decision. So I'm here for you. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to take care of you however you need because we're doing this together. Welcome to Black Cancer. I'm your host, Jodi Ambiri. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Kavita Jackson, breast cancer warrior MD. We talk about her experiences from launching her career as an emergency room physician to facing stage two invasive ductal carcinoma, breast cancer. A mother of two small children, the daughter of immigrants from India, she draws on the strength of those who support her to navigate treatment and her relationship with her body. We work through understanding that our mind and our bodies, they're fighting the same war to heal ourselves. After the credits, stay on for a few more moments to listen to Dr. Jackson and I discuss cancer swag, the concept of corporate pinkwashing, and negotiating potential silver linings, if we can call them that, to our respective cancer journeys. Just a heads up. This conversation was recorded before the death of Dr. Susan Moore, the physician who, before she succumbed to COVID-19, posted videos online about the racism she experienced by the hospital team where she was being treated. I say this because we touch on a few topics in this conversation that we would have likely brought this up, but we're not, not talking about it. This season, keep in mind, when the conversations are recorded and when they're posted, it may be a chronological with current events. Okay, so here's my conversation with Dr. Jackson. I also want to let people know that I respect your position and the work that you do. And so even though you did give me permission to call you Kavita, I will call you Dr. Jackson if you're nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Do you do that, Ms. Jackson, if you're nasty? Oh my gosh. Um, So I'm really pumped that you're here. I'm really excited to chat with you. I think this is actually the first time that I saw someone on social media and I'm like, I want to talk to this person. And so thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jodi Ann, or I guess I can call you Miss Bury. No, Um, that's okay. (laughs) I'm I'm so desperate to get rid of my last name. And so if there's anyone out there who wants to marry me. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I always get excited to talk to other immigrants or one and a half generation. I'm always drawn to learning more about your origin story. So I actually want to start there, Um, setting up some context about who you are and who you come from. So I was born and raised in the suburbs of Michigan. And as you mentioned, I'm a first generation. I'm Indian American. My parents came from India. Um, Well, my dad had come a a few years before I was born. Um, And my mom came over, you know, 35 plus weeks pregnant when she wasn't supposed to be flying, actually just so I could be born in our country. 
she's a doctor. Um, she is the only female in her family. She's got three older brothers. So she's the youngest and the only female. Um, and it, it, for her to be in medicine is actually quite unheard of in how she got there, which I thought was very interesting. She um, went to junior high and they had a line for the, you had to pick between arts and science and the science line was shorter and she just didn't have that much patience. So she got in the shorter line um, and that's how she became a doctor. I love this. I love this so much. I love it so much because my experience was entirely different. Not to say that she didn't have to deal with a lot of rigor um, and it still took a lot of determination and hard work and studying um, and a lot of home management because she actually had my brother and I while she was training. But this, her decision point of how she got into it sounds way simpler than all the thought that I had to go through and all the things I had to go through to get to medical school, school um, in the United States. So she did all of that, did her training, came to the U.S., had my brother and I, had to repeat some of her training as an immigrant, and has been practicing um, geriatrics for the last, you know, 20, well, how old am I? Yeah, so 30 plus years. And my dad is an engineer. He worked for Ford. You could say a very typical Indian family, mm -hmm. <laughs> engineer and one doctor. Um, and as you know, I'm, I'm a physician as well. I'm in emergency medicine and my brother happens to be an engineer. I love that. That is like, it, that's a very Indian narrative, if I can say, but also a lot of people from the Caribbean, a lot of people from different countries in Africa, it's like, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. Yeah. Like, those are your options. Those are your options. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think my parents are so lucky that without pushing us into where we are, that they've gotten what many Indian parents want is an engineer and a doctor and actually, you know, two kids that have followed in their footsteps and on top of that. So I think they're very lucky. <laughs> Yes, and you're lucky as well, so you don't have to feel their wrath for the rest of your life. Yes. About your <laughs> they, can't, they can't give me crap about anything because I've done all the things and met all the expectations. Um, but no, really, I, I am pretty lucky. They, they never pushed when it was inappropriate. And I've been thinking, I, you know, this is totally not where our conversation was going, but I've been thinking about now that I have my own two kids, what it is that they did, how they raised my brother and I, so that we could be successful and happy into where we are right now. We're both very accomplished. We've been very fortunate with our upbringing and our education um, and having the ability to explore lots of different interests. And it, I feel like they've done it, my parents did this all without demanding anything of us, without saying you have to be a doctor, engineer, or lawyer, without threatening us with anything, never really pushing us here. We, I like to think very naturally found ourselves into the positions that we're in. And it's almost more satisfying that way than, you know, I'm here because my parents said I have to be here. And how can I instill that in my kids? So I'm still figuring that out. But I think one thing I realized is that they did push us to try new things and to, you know, study harder, but they never criticized if something didn't go right, right? If we, if we didn't do as well on a test or we, um, you know, I was in marching band, I played oboe. If something didn't go so great there, they were always there to catch us when we fell, always to support, always to uplift so that we could keep moving forward. And I think that was very helpful to have that mindset and support from my parents, which I've always had and I still have. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's important. 
Yeah. I think what's also interesting about being first generation too is to not just understand your origin stories, but to kind of look back on your life and realize that you were actually witnessing your parents doing some of the hardest things, right? Coming to this country, maybe not having as big of a network as they had where they were from, trying to figure things out and raising small children. And when I turned 34, I realized that I was the same age as my mom when she came to this country with an infant. I was Mm -hmm. like eight months or something and, you know, three other kids. And then my sister was born three years later. And I'm like, could I have done what my mom did? And there's part of me that's like, oh, hell no, right? Because I don't have kids. Like, I don't know if I would do that. (laughs) And then there's part of me that's like, Yes, because there is something about bearing witness to that, that at least give me, gives me the confidence that I can approach hard things and get to the other side of it, which is something that helped carry me through my own cancer journey. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I absolutely agree, um, especially reflecting back on the things that they've done. So I'll tell you, at the age of 16, no, right? I was trying to move as far away from my parents as I could. I was trying to go to college in California, all this kind of stuff. Like, we didn't have a great relationship. I had no idea what they've endured and what they did, actually, for my brother and I to have a good life, right? We, like, we were the focus of their whole lives, and everything they did was for the betterment of of us. And now as a parent, as reflecting back on that, I'm just like, oh my goodness, right? Like I've handled all these, you know, I've moved across state lines, training, I have young kids, you know, a demanding job, it's a lot to juggle, but I am in the same country that I was born in, I'm familiar with the culture, I speak the language, I was educated here, I have all of these things that assist my fitting into this country, I can't imagine juggling that, you know, being away from your whole network of family, just in this brand new country, right, the promised land, getting the, getting the American yep. <laughs> dream that everybody comes here to get. And, as you know, in the 80s, things were not as friendly as they're becoming now to first generations and to immigrants, we still have a lot of work to go. But I, I just can't imagine, you know, how they did all of that. And then mad respect, because they did it for me. They yeah. didn't even do it for themselves. It was for me and my brother. Uh, hats off to all the immigrant parents out there. Really annoying sometimes being bicultural. <laughs> trying to navigate who you are culturally there and the roots that you come from and then being American and what that is you know after this I feel like I'm gonna have to call my mom like mom you know thank you so much (laughs) she'll be like what's wrong I know she's like she'll actually be like oh Joe is calling me that never happens I'm I'm not the best child but I'm working on it (laughs) watching your mom do all of this and become like pursue her medical career, you had a very grueling last decade and a half (laughs) navigating your own family life and your career. Can you just share a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, and I, I will say with with having the immigrant parents, the not realizing all that's you know what we're their endurance and strength that we're bearing witness to, but it does raise the bar on what's normal for me, what's attainable for me as a woman and in this country, and that gave me an example and something that I I really appreciate 
you know, when I hear from other women or especially young women, like, oh, women don't do that. Or how can a woman do this, this and that? Um, but for me, it's normal. Like my mom did that. I know it can be done. I've seen it done. Therefore, I know I can do it and I know you can do it. I know anybody can do it. I'm grateful for that message. It has been very difficult <laughs> the last 14 years. So I graduated high school, yeah, about 16 years ago. And it took me 14 years from then to become an emergency medicine physician. During that time, I also got married and I had two kids during emergency medicine residency, which just know it is possible. It is not easy. Lots of people will tell you no and will not recommend it. And I say, choose what's best for you and however you need to make things work to reach the goals that are important to you. It is possible. Anything is possible um, if it's what you want to do. My number one supports have been my husband and my mom. Actually, she's been alongside me the whole time. I moved from Michigan to Philadelphia for uh, medical school and to do a post-bac. And when I started to do my residency there and wanted to have kids, she moved across all those states to come live about a mile away from me in a city that she didn't care about, <laughs> in this <laughs> apartment building that she hated, um, all to be near me so I could have kids um, and to help me raise the kids and help with that balance so I could do all the things that I do at work and with my training. And then when I moved to D.C., she upped from Philadelphia and she moved to D.C. as well. I had mom. Um, and that was right about the time I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and just like always, she's been there the whole time right next to me by my side, assisting um, in so many different ways. And I do talk to her about once a day on average. So we, we are very close and much closer than we were when I was growing up. Do you feel like your relationship with her changed with your diagnosis or the kids or kind of what was that shift you think? Yeah, so I, I think the major shift was kids for sure. Like just being a parent, it's like you, I just can't even describe it. No one could describe it to me. But when you have your child, like there's all of these emotions and attachments and just different feelings and thoughts that you have that you've never had before. Like now you're responsible for a life and you created it and it's, it's powerful, it's scary, it's exciting. It's, it's so many different things. And to be able to relate to somebody about that is nice. Um, especially with her being an immigrant and growing up in this country. My children are interracial. They are Black and they're Indian. So that is, you know, something that we're very cognizant about of how we're raising them, the environment we're raising them in, um, certain values that we discuss and interactions with the world. There are certain things to think about and to be um, mindful of. So there's no book. I'm, well, I'm sure there's books on this, but Formally speaking, there is no like book that's going to teach you all of this. So we do have some interesting discussions and I like to know how she navigated different situations or new situations. I think that's what it is, new and different and how to approach them. Yeah. And, and, and at this time in your life with, you know, you have young kids, you're transitioning and then this tumor pops up. So can you take me there of like, how did you find your tumor? Yeah, as you were saying, it was a lot of change in my life. I just graduated residency and I was a brand new attending and that was very 
stressful. We had just moved. Um, we had very minimal support having moved here. In December of 2019, so it was just about a year ago, around the holiday times, I just had a pain. I just felt this sharp pain in my right breast and grabbed it with my right hand. And that's how I felt the tumor or mass. You know, I just touched it and I was like, oh, well, that's weird. How long has that been there? I should probably get this checked out. And then what was the path there? You feel this mass, you feel this pain, then what? Yeah, so, well, the first thing was I needed a primary care doctor, which I didn't have one because when we moved here, my kids got their, you know, their pediatrician, they got an allergist, they had a dermatologist for um, their eczema and stuff like that. My husband got an allergist and everybody was set up and I was the last person because that's what moms do. Um, and then, so, but this pushed me into, okay, hey, now is the time I should get this checked out. It's going to be a cyst. It's going to be a fibroadenoma, but you know, just get it done sooner than later. Cause I have a long to-do list, you know, just get things done as I can. And it takes time to get in with the doctor. So it took me about a month to get in. Um, and I just found my doctor off ZocDoc and she took my insurance and she's the soonest one I could see, you know, considering all the holidays. So I went in to see her and she was, you know, very astute, very on top of it, a young uh, woman of color like myself. So I feel like we connected very well and I trusted everything that she said. Um, and I just needed an ultrasound, honestly, but she wanted a mammogram and an ultrasound. And, you know, I was like, okay, doctor, you know, like I'm, I'm the patient and I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna try not to doctor myself. And if that's your recommendation, absolutely. I'm going to do it. And then we scheduled the mammogram. I got it done, had the ultrasound done. And that same day, the radiologist had come in and was reviewing the results with me and recommended a immediate biopsy that they wanted to do that day in an hour. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, like, let me see the ultrasound images. I ultrasound at work all the time. Granted, not on the breast and not looking for tumors. So I'm not actually trained to understand this particular ultrasound, but you know, me from what I thought I understood, I was like, this is not anything concerning. Why, you know, this is just all overkill. But once again, if that's the recommendation, they think this is right, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree. I'm going to do what's recommended. Um, and I said, well, I have to leave though, because I have to pick up my kids. They have to do dinner. I work tonight. I have to get in a nap before I go to work overnight and stuff like that. But I promise I'll be back the next week. And I came in the next week. I got the biopsy done. Then about a week later, I got the results. And it was the phone call I had received while I was at work. Um, and I knew it was the pathology results for my biopsy, but I was working and I was just trying to stay focused on my patients. And even though I knew it was just a benign cyst, like, you know, just focus on my patients and not get distracted by this. I'll look at it when I get home. And my preference was to look at my pathology report myself and my own pri with my own privacy. Um, and I opened it up when I got home and it said invasive ductal carcinoma. Nottingham grade three. And I thought, well, that's cancer. Like I know that that is cancer. And clearly this got mixed up with somebody else because I don't have cancer. <laughs> you know, the, there's no way this is my result. Simple misunderstanding. I will call them back tomorrow. And I did, and they confirmed the results over the phone. I am so sorry, Dr. Jackson. Um, but you need to meet with oncology, you need to meet with breast surgery, you need to get an MRI, we need to have a port. I was just like, what? Yeah, I didn't hear anything after that. Um, and that's how it all started. <sighs> I think it's interesting, like navigating stuff like this, when you actually have some type of medical literacy, but you're an actual 
doctor, right? Like you have the terminology, you did the trainings that a lot of these folks that are, you know, managing your care have done. And so what was that process, knowing the steps that you were in, being able to speak to these doctors in like doctor language, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then still having this denial of like, oh, it's just a cyst. Oh, you know, they mix up the labs. Like that's a bit of a, a disassociation, right? Yeah. So I think I was pretty hypercritical in the beginning of my care because like you said, I understood what was going on. Now, once, you know, I'm an emergency medicine physician, I'm not a breast physician or a surgeon or do anything directly with breast cancer. So I'm not an expert in that regard, but I am familiar, like you said, with treatments and things to expect. So I was just reviewing everything down to the T. All of it was so new. These aren't doctors that I had known for years. I went from getting a a brand new primary care doctor to now having a team of like three to seven different doctors, all brand new, all women, which probably helped immensely like that was huge for me they're all young women so people i connected with instantly as a woman in medicine but i was pretty critical i think until some point i you know i had enough trust in them and it was too overwhelming to try to manage myself when i didn't need to when i had all the doctors doing that reviewing everything with a critical eye they're incredibly intelligent. I understood their recommendations. I agreed with them. And so I had trust. And at some point I had to release and let them take over, let them do your job. You can't be the patient and the doctor at the same time, right? Like you can advocate for yourself. And and that's something I think a skill I had from being in medicine because I advocate for patients all the time. That's part of my job. And the emergency department, I'm often calling consultants or other specialists to get something for my patient. And I do it because it's for the sake of the patient and it's what's right for the patient. And I will push and push and push until I get done or get for them a service or whatever it is that I think is right for them. And so I knew how to advocate. And I think that's something that helped me immensely. I could stand up for what my thoughts were, possibly because I'm a physician and or because my care team was awesome. I always felt heard and that's an advantage that i had that they were not just listening but you know making certain changes or explaining things to me when i didn't understand things or if i felt confused or if i may not have you know understood why or what was being done but in the beginning when i first met my oncologists i completely just broke down and started crying because she had mentioned chemotherapy and she said you know an awesome doctor sitting face to face, grabbed my hands, doctor, you know, right before COVID was really taking off. So it was okay to hold hands at that point. (laughs) Back back in the day when we can touch people. (laughs) Yeah. You know, now we do like these air hugs and I know side note, but after remission, I saw my doctors and I wanted to just grab them and I couldn't, we just from across the, you know, room had to do these air hugs, which was not satisfying. But so she said, Dr. Jackson, what are you so worried about? What is worrying you? What are you scared about? What are you thinking? And I said, you know, breast cancer, chemotherapy, it reminds me of all of the patients that I've seen with this in the emergency department. If someone has cancer um, or is on chemotherapy and they're coming to see me in the ER, they're not doing very well. I've actively seen people pass away in front of me or have just really bad health problems or health conditions 
because of cancer and chemotherapy. And now that's going to be me. You know, like, it's like my mind just went to the worst of the worst. And I was really scared and I didn't want to be that person. But my oncologist was awesome and reminded me that that is the lens through which I am seeing all of this. But that the majority of women and people with breast cancer or chemotherapy are treated as outpatients. The majority of people do very well and I don't see them because they're doing so well with their treatment and progressing with their cancer. So I truly am seeing the worst of the worst and that that's not everybody and that's not necessarily gonna be me. So. <laughs> no, I listen. I think a lot of people are afraid of cancer because to them, cancer equals death in kind of a discourse way, right? Like how we just generally talk about it. Mm-hmm. But your experience is very unique because you have seen people die. It's tough to then try to put yourself on the other side of something. I remember when my doctors were telling me about the risk of paralysis from the neck down, just out of commission. And I remember as a personal trainer, helping people, right, with all their physical disabilities and helping people advance in their physical ability to run marathons and do this. And I just felt like, wait, what? Am I the one? who's going to be on this other side of needing so much physical care, Mm -hmm. um, needing someone to help me. And I've had relationships with clients for years as a trainer. And then to see myself, I've had relationships with my physical therapist and my occupational therapist for years. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to, I think, imagine yourself on the reverse of that dynamic when it's you. I think you're so correct, this concept of the other side. So um, as I was blogging, I investigated a little bit about just like physicians with any sort of chronic illness and why this is something we have such a difficult time accepting and addressing. Like if you're a doctor and you get sick, it's like this extra insult for some reason, you know? And it's a very much of like, it's a them, like the patient gets illness, and that's them. I am the healer. We don't get sick. Yep. But that's not true. You know, this identity of you can be a healer, you can be a care provider, you know, not just a doctor in whatever role that you do it as a family member or as a, a physical therapist or whatever your role is. We all take care of, you know, other people in different ways. So you don't just have to be a doctor, but it's a very much, oh, this is me. I take care of people. So I'm not used to being the patient. Like it's just not a role I identify with. And something I had read, it was an interview of physicians describing why their chronic illness or whatever their condition was, was so challenging for them. So not only is this, uh, there's this, we don't get sick, right? But there's this obligation of like, oh, now all these, you know, my colleagues, they probably think I'm weaker, I'm ashamed because I can't do my job. You know, they're gonna see me as less. I'm no longer this intelligent, strong person and I'm gonna be seen as incapacitated. 
when that may not be true at all. You know, if you have something like hypertension or high blood pressure, that doesn't really affect your ability to be a doctor. You can still be incredibly successful um, in providing care to other people. But there's this idea that it's like we need permission to be sick. We need somebody to say, hey, you have cancer and it's okay. Or like, you know, you have high blood pressure. It's okay. That doesn't mean the end of your professional life or your professional abilities. And it doesn't make you any less capable of doing them. Yeah. It actually can strengthen your ability to do that. And so after my surgery, I came back to Seattle and I went to go see my primary care physician. When she walked into the room, she had no hair, no eyebrows, nothing. And I'm like, she's actively going through chemotherapy and she's coming in here to help me with my own cancer stuff. Yeah. And to just sit there, um, my doctor's also a woman of color, love her so much. (laughs) (laughs) And to just sit and talk with her about our experiences. And I know that she knows what she's talking about because she has also been through that. From the patient perspective, I see her, I almost hold her to a higher regard. She's not less than, she's more than because she knows the journey. She can relate. But it's, it's interesting if like physician to physician, if it's like, oh yeah, you, you're not as strong because it got you too or something. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I can't say ever, I ever felt like that about any of my colleagues that I knew were having a chronic condition. So I think we don't actively choose to think that, but there is at least a perception that my colleagues will see me in this way. And this whole idea of us versus them, you know, like doctor versus patient, I think is just being challenged, you know, at least recently and even for my own mind, like why is there an us and them when we are actually like, we're so entangled together, right? Like why is there an us and them? Like I am the doctor and you're the patient, you know? Like I, I think this experience for me, Um, as a physician, when I go back to practice is actually breaking down a lot of barriers with my patients. And, you know, like you mentioned, you, I feel like your doctor, you know, when you saw her like that was more human and more real to you and more relatable, and you may have trusted her a little bit more, you know, without realizing it, but just having that knowledge of what she's going through or that physicians do get ill. I think it does break those barriers down and we are absolutely in medicine moving away from the traditional paternalistic approach of like, I'm the doctor, I'm going to tell you to do X, Y, and Z and you're going to go do it because that's what I said, right? Like we're being more involved in our, in our care. We are understanding and taking responsibility of our health a little bit more and learning how to advocate for ourselves. And now there's this idea of shared decision making, um, which is, you know, certain things, um, let's say you present with some kind of pain and there's a couple different tests you can get and one is not clearly better than the other, or it is. Instead of just telling you, you're going to get test A, I'm going to say, hey, here's a couple different tests. I'm going to recommend A because this, this, and that but there's also B and C and you should know about the pros and cons of them. What are your, your thoughts, right? You're going to be much more invested in your health and taking responsibility with that sort of a conversation. So I think this whole thing just breaks down some barriers and, you know, 
hopefully will make me more approachable in my interactions with patients. Like that's my dream for folks of color to be able to advocate for themselves, to understand that they have shared decision-making ability in yes. conversations with people who are, you know, maybe still of this mindset of I have the white coat. I'm the one who has the MD. I'm going to tell you X, Y, and Z. And at least in my own experience, like if I just listened to my doctors, I would be paralyzed right now. It was my own self-advocacy mm -hmm. that got me the MRI that found the tumor. Yeah. And so just being able to understand your own, um, if you're a doctor or not, doctor, yep. you know, MPH, whatever, you have a voice, you have an investment in your health and in your life. Absolutely. It is your health. It's your body. These are your decisions that you should be involved in making. And I encourage you as a patient or when you're in the patient seat to advocate, to ask questions, to make sure you understand. Um, you know, I myself am about to discharge someone from the ER and I'll just break things down and then, you know, I'll be like, all right, so you got to see your doctor in a couple of days. Do you have any questions? And so they'll be like, I understood none of that. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Okay. I didn't explain something well enough, but I'm so glad you said that because what I said for you to do the next steps or what I recommended or things you should look out for are actually really important. So let's break it down, whether that means writing it down, whether that means using some different language, whether that means telling a second family member that they want involved for, you know, there's different ways to do that. And what works for one person doesn't work for the next. And I also highly encourage you, this does not sound as simple, but we're not perfect. We all have different personalities as physicians. One doctor may not be the fit, the right fit or the best fit for three different patients. So if you're with a doctor and for whatever reason, you just don't feel like the relationship is jiving, it doesn't mean they're a bad doctor. It does not mean you are a bad or non-compliant patient. It just might mean it's not the best fit. The best of your ability and in insurance or non-insurance allowing it's okay to ask for another doctor or to make an appointment with somebody else. This is somebody you want to trust and have a trusting relationship with. So it's absolutely okay to have a different doctor. Yes. Or a team of doctors too. Yes. Like I have so many doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting when, when you get your diagnosis, it feels like a very singular experience. It is a personal journey when you're sitting there that this is this thing that is happening to my body, mm -hmm. but we're connected to so many people. Um, and what I love about this podcast is also trying to think about the cancer journeys of folks who don't have a diagnosis. And so for you, you know, you have your practice of telling patients tough news. How did you navigate telling your loved ones your husband, your parents, your kids, like how do you share that information with people who love you? That is such a good question. And I think I did nothing 
that I ever have recommended to anybody. You know, when you are when you are in those shoes, I guarantee it's just a completely different situation. And anytime someone says that to me now, I believe them and I will honor and respect what they're saying because I have no idea. So when it happened, my approach, essentially I would have told nobody if I didn't have to tell anybody. <laughs> and I would have just kept it all to myself, which I did for a yeah. very long time until I got the diagnosis. Um, and then I was like, shoot, well, I can't go to chemo without people noticing at home, like my husband yeah. and my mom and my kids, they're going to notice. So I have to tell them. My mom was actually visiting from Philadelphia to look at apartments to move in. And what I did, we were just sitting in bed, the kids were asleep and she was laying down. I just pulled up my phone and I pulled up the path results and I just handed it to her. <laughs> I couldn't bear to say much more than that. And as a physician, I knew she'd read it and she knew exactly what was going on. Um, and her response, you know, was like, no. She's like, Who's, whose results are these? Why are you showing me this? <laughs> Is this a patient? Is this HIPAA compliant? Why yeah, are you yeah, sharing exactly, it? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I was like, wait, no, scroll up, look at the name, look at the date of birth. Um, and that's how that conversation started. And we didn't talk too much about it because I just couldn't handle, I just could not handle it. I was not saying the word cancer. I didn't say that, I think, until a couple months in saying the C word or that I have the C word or anything like that. The other people close to me, like my, my brother and some very close friends, I sent a text message and the last line of the text message was, don't call me. I don't want to talk about it, but I just wanted you to know, here's what's going on with me. I like that, like the boundary setting. Yeah, like I said, if I, I wouldn't have told anybody if I didn't have to, at, at least in the beginning, you know, like I just yeah. didn't even know how I felt about it because I felt a thousand different things about it. 99% of them negative things, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's it, there's a whole, you know, this whole group, our support people, these people affected by cancer, right? I, I didn't hear that until recently, like someone affected by cancer, to me, translated to they've been diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. No, there's so many, even more than the people diagnosed with cancer are people affected by cancer as a family member, a friend, a, you know, however, your neighbor, you can still be affected by it. And it's, it's really important to give those support people um, the attention and encouragement and their own support, whether they're, you know, providing physical care or um, emotional support or whatever it is, because they're bearing a lot of this diagnosis, even though it's not in their bodies. How did you tell your kids or did you tell them, like, how do you navigate these conversation with, with very small people? <laughs> right. So I thought, you know, I have to tell them I should, I'm very close with them. Also we're in COVID pandemic and we're quarantining together and you can't really hide, you know, at least the physical signs of cancer. So they're going to know what's up. Um, I had told them that mommy has a big boo-boo on her chest, and so she's going to the doctor, she gets medicines, I involve them, at least my four-year-old, who was, who was very observant, um, wanted to be involved, had lots of questions, so I showed her, I showed her my band-aids, she's still to this day, she takes my band-aids off, if I go for whatever reason, she'll, she gets to take the band-aids off, I showed her my port, and I let her kind of touch and feel it, um, after surgery, she thought the um, JP drains were really cool. So she would just kind of, you know, sterilely and cleanly like squish the <laughs> liquids around. And I think 
people probably think that's so incredibly gross, but this is also a medical household, I guess. And, yeah. uh, well, I mean, regardless of being a doctor, it has become a full-on medical household. Um, so we are not as grossed out anymore. These things are normal to us. But she liked to stay involved in that way. And my two-year-old kind of gets it. Not really. She's pretty, <laughs> she's pretty just like blissful in her own <laughs> understanding of things. But she asks me now more recently, I think she's caught on, she asks me if my boo-boo is all fixed and she wants to like look at, I don't have bandages and stuff to show them on my chest anymore, but um, she likes to kind of every now and then kind of look there. So that that's kind of how I did it. And I tried to make it fun, you know, with their positive and fun energy it just contributed so much positivity and light to my experience. Like when I cut my hair, I think was what I anticipated to be the most difficult part of this because of my attachment, not just physically to my hair, but the pride that I took in my hair. Mm -hmm. I've always had very long hair and I style it and take a lot of care with that. So knowing I was going to lose my hair was very, um, anxiety provoking for me and so we sectioned it off and my husband buzzed it all off and my kids were at my parents house at that time because this was something you know we thought we should it's probably best if we just do the two of us and I FaceTime my daughter and she goes oh my gosh you have a haircut like Nana I'm like daddy and all the men in my family so, and she just thought it was so cool and she insisted to have her haircut done the same way. And I, I considered it because there's this thing in Indian culture called a mundan where you do cut kids hair when they're very young with the idea that hair carries, um, you know, part of your life in it. And because we believe in karma and reincarnation, the hair you're born with is from your prior lives. And you want to start a fresh life without any of the badness that might be transferring over. So you cut it off. And I ended up not going through with it because I thought, you know, she's four and ah, uh, I couldn't get myself to do it, but we might, maybe next year we'll do it. I recently heard about that because um, Mindy Kaling mm -hmm. had a, yeah. another baby yeah. during quarantine and no one knew about it. I did not know. <laughs> I'm just finding out and now I have the urge to go look it up. I'll do it after the podcast. Yeah, but so she was um, talking about how she cut her daughter's hair and that yeah. whole process and yeah, I just, I just love the way you involved them. And when I'm assuming it wasn't something that could feel scary for them. Like they knew yeah. what was going on in the way that they can understand it. Yeah. So they don't, they don't know the word cancer. You know, I, I didn't think that hard about it. I just thought, let me try to communicate in some way and see where it goes. I didn't really have a formal plan, but I wanted them. I didn't want to hide it yeah. from them if I didn't have to. Can I ask you a tough question? Maybe a tough question. I don't know if it's tough, but we'll see. Yeah. So as you're navigating this with your kids and talking about boo-boos and all of that, like underlying all of that, at any point, did you feel like you were going to die? In the beginning, you know, when I, when I got that diagnosis, breast cancer, you know, invasive ductal carcinoma, and then at that point, I knew nothing else, right? So for me, I know about staging. And the next biggest concern was, well, what stage is it? Stage one is very different than stage four. And I did not know. I didn't really find out until I was done with chemo and after my first surgery. So I was diagnosed in March, and I found out at the end of July what stage I was. I'm a stage 2A. It was all because I had to wait on the lymph node evaluation. 
but in the beginning that's kind of instantly where my mind my mind had gone to it's kind of like you had this mass and you actually assumed the best the most common you assumed what the textbooks would tell you is that in a young woman with no risk factors for cancer that this is probably a fibroadenoma or a cyst and it turned out not to be and i was not going to let myself be fooled again i went back to my mindset of worst case scenario which is how I live my life professionally and personally. And it's, I was almost ashamed that I let this slip away from me and almost thought it was something, you know, benign. But just all the uncertainty, it crossed my mind. Well, you might die, you might die soon. And are you ready? And for me, it wasn't even mental. My mind went through the checklist of, is your will set up? You, do you have your advanced directive? The girls' college funds are set up. Are they an automated, you know, automated to be funding, funded and things like that? Um, the logistics of what am I going to do for my family, considering I may not be here. I should write some letters to my girls. You know, stuff like that. Just without having known, my mind went straight there and I started to prepare. So what does it mean to you to be a survivor? So I'm pretty new to survivorhood and I am learning about it. I, I really did think, you know, you go into remission and the cancer is gone, no evidence of disease, and that's great. You move on, never looking back. You know, knowing that there are some things from this experience things I learned about myself in the world that I will take forward, but I'm like, bye cancer, see you never. And it didn't really happen like that. Um, Deuces. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like, see you, never, never going to deal with this. But, you know, shortly after I was planning to go back to work, and then because of my chemotherapy and recovering immune system in the pandemic, I found out that I'm not actually going back to work. And then this thing that I thought was done is actually continuing to affect me and what I'm doing day-to-day -day still, the effects from surgery. Like I have a lot of numbness and some physical restrictions that I'm still working through. So survivor for me right now means that there is no evidence of disease, the cancer itself is not there, um, and my treatments are done. I'm done with the surgeries. So that's kind of what it means. Treatment in cancer in one way is done, but I am forever a breast cancer patient or survivor of breast cancer. This is going to be a part of me and I'm going to make it as positive of an experience as I can going forward. And now I feel an obligation to educate and empower and reach out to anyone in the world who will listen, but women, women of color, Indian women, people across the country, across the world to talk about self-breast exams, about what cancer is, what it's like to have cancer, what it was like as a doctor, what it's like as a mom, sharing just real raw experiences. I have nothing to be ashamed of from having breast cancer. Um, and if it's going to help empower or relate, make one other person be able to relate or feel supported, I am all for it. Can we talk about the self-breast exam? Yeah. Um, when we had talked about this before, you said that in your medical studies, you know, you knew that like because of what you knew then you weren't doing self-breast exams mm -hmm. and now your experience shifted that can you share a little bit about like why i felt that self-breast exams weren't the way to go and now you're like 
check your boobs like every day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in medical school, we learn certain guidelines from different governing bodies. So for example, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, that's ACOG, A-C-O-G, um, amongst in several other organizations like the American Cancer Society, they make different recommendations based on a lot of research that has been done. So self-breast exams were not recommended for women to do because the research shows if you do self-breast exams, women tend to find a lot of abnormalities that leads to a lot of additional invasive testing. So like mammograms and biopsies and sometimes surgery, which in the end ended up being unnecessary because they did not have cancer. So doing the self-breast exam, people were finding a lot of benign lesions, but they got a lot, of, a lot of invasive testing to work it up and it ended up not being cancer. And all that invasive testing has some side effects that go along with it. So it was not a benign process. You know, money is also a concern, the amount of healthcare dollars, which for my personal purposes is, um, you know, less important in this conversation, but things that people, when they make recommendations in our country are thinking about. We as patients are less thinking about that when we want, when we think we need certain tests done. Um, so I didn't do it because of the high false positive rate. Um, then when I felt this pain and, you know, I got the math, I felt the mass and all that kind of stuff diagnosed with cancer, I was like, hold on a minute. Um, how long has it been there? Would I have found it sooner if I had done the breast exams on myself? They're so easy to do. It doesn't take formal training. Um, my mass was big enough that if I had just looked at myself sideways in a mirror, I would have noticed it. I wasn't even looking, you know? How can, and you definitely can, will not find something that you are not looking for, or at least aware to look for. So now I highly encourage, and I have been teaching self-rest exams um, through social media to women in India, to physicians in India, people in the US, wherever. Anybody that's interested to learn really about breast health and breast awareness um, can learn about a self-rest exam, which, that sentence didn't totally make sense. But the idea is to have breast awareness. And I think the ACOG now mentions encouraging breast awareness. And it's up to a physician and the patient to decide, you know, if you want to do it through an exam um, or how you want to do that. And essentially, you want to just know what is normal for you. Um, so you can notice any sort of change and any change is a red flag. It's alarming. You don't have to remember the list of like, oh, a mass, a rash, nipple discharge. No, if you know what's normal for you and you look once a month, you feel once a month, you notice something different, that prompts a conversation with your doctor that you have found something. And I think it's a sense of having a very intimate relationship with your body, like not yeah. just breast awareness, but your body awareness yes. um, and trusting your body and trusting your assessment of your body. Like, hey, this is different. This is not normal. And I think especially for women of color, I feel like a lot of times we can normalize physically or, or mentally being in chronic pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's actually not okay. Um, yeah. So how can you advocate for yourself? But then on the flip side, when your body, like you're here trusting your body and having this beautiful relationship with your body <laughs> and then your body's like, mm, I'm just going to grow masses in places, <laughs> right? Like what? 
I had this total mind-body disconnect when I was diagnosed and probably for the first time in my life, I understood the difference between mind and body and the mind-body connection. It's something I just did not, did not understand, right? Because like my mind and my body, we're not only physically connected, but we work as one, right? And then so when cancer happened, I had this hate and I felt totally betrayed by my body. Like how the F did you go and do this to me? Like, this is my body. I didn't give you permission to do that. You have now waged this unwelcome war. You didn't consult me. You didn't give me a heads up. Aren't we, don't we do this together? Like you belong to me. What is this shit that you have gone and uh, decided to do? Like, that's totally not cool. And like, you can't, aside from... (laughs) This isn't even funny, but aside, you know, the only way to literally separate these two things is to behead yourself, I guess, which is like yeah. super morbid. And I don't know if you want to include that, but when <laughs> chemo started and, you know, I was at war with my body, I was at war with cancer and then chemotherapy started and you start to feel those physical side effects and that illness, you just, your body feels awful. Your mind feels awful. I kind of realized like, hey, we're actually in this together. Like we are fighting the same war and we are gonna be stronger together. I'm, you know, you show up for chemo every day. Every day you wake up, you show up for your treatments, you show up for all the visits. You know, my body is there showing up and now it's for my time for my mind to get on board. I'm gonna support you. You supported me in so many ways in the past. You. I'm going to believe did not choose cancer. Cancer chose you. Cancer chose us because we would not have made that decision. So I'm here for you. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to take care of you however you need because we're doing this together. So we are reconnected now. I struggle with that a lot too because just literally with someone with a spinal cord injury, my mind and my body are disconnected in a lot of different ways. And for years, I was felt that betrayal, that war. I felt like I was fighting with my body because my mind was like, oh, let's go walk upstairs. And my body wasn't doing it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and so then as you're trying to heal, as you're trying to get better, you know, how do you have that conversation with your body? And honestly, it's been a couple years for me now. And I recently took a yoga class on my little Peloton app, Chelsea Mm -hmm. Jackson Roberts, team Chelsea all the way. And (laughs) I only do the um, black and brown yoga instructors. Uh I just, I can't, like, I need, if we're talking about my body, I need you to see me, you know? So Chelsea said something like, what does justice look like in your body? What does equity look like in your body? How can you understand what your body needs and give it that? And it clicked it like, this is a couple months ago. It just clicked like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> How can I be equitable to my body? How can I trust that we're, as you say, we're fighting the same war. So what can we do to give each other like what we need to heal? Yes. Yeah. And it's so interesting as you say that, you know, I also had this bias too of like, all right, cancer treatment, I'm good to go. And then the numbness listen, numbness is a thing. It sounds so benign. Mm -hmm. Like, oh yeah, you know, my hand is numb. No, like 
numbness is a thing neuropathy yeah. is a thing yeah and it's this like lingering sense that yeah. like, this thing happened to you and this relationship with your body is and that conversation and what does justice look like will be forever to have that connection and that um appreciation that your body is trying to get better yeah and all of it's a very much a give and take it's a two-way street like you said right like our, our bodies are giving us you know, doing all the things that they do, giving us all these things, allowing our minds to live physically, what are we doing for our bodies? You know, what are we giving back? Like, how does hate serve us, right? Like hating our bodies, how does that serve us? Punishing our bodies, how does that serve us? It doesn't. These are questions I had with myself, you know, throughout the cancer treatment and stuff of, then I start, you know, thinking, how are my actions and thoughts serving me right now? And if they're serving me negatively or poorly, um, you know, not just like experiencing a negative emotion so I can understand it and move forward and move upward, but if this is affecting me negatively, if I wanna stay negative and that's the direction I wanna go, stay down that path. And that, that's okay. I mean, I got, you just have to ask yourself the question so you know which way you're headed. And if not, if I want to feel good, I want to feel strong, I want to feel positive, there's a separate path for that. And that doesn't mean ignoring your negative emotions and feelings. You should absolutely explore and understand them. Otherwise, I found they kind of build up until they burst out and that's never pretty and it does not feel good. Like, respect them for what they are and then move the direction that you want to move. That is so powerful. It's so powerful and it resonates with me because of where I am in my journey now. I think if you told me that two or three years ago, I'd be like, whatever, Kavita. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Everything that you're saying will make sense when you're ready to understand it when you are ready things that people have told me you know like unrelated to cancer you know like advice about going to medical school advice about being a parent and you just kind of hear it and you're like yes i respect your thoughts and you're you know this advice you're giving is great but until you experience it and become ready to understand that message or that advice It has no bearing on you. It will not influence your actions and you will just not understand it. So, you know, when it's the time and you are ready, you will understand it. Yeah. And so I want to ask you a question that you had flipped on me when we talked about this before. (laughs) I know. I don't think I have an answer yet. I tried to think of one. I saw that on your list and I was like, shh still trying to figure this out but yeah ask away let's all right let's work through this so (laughs) if you bumped into your future self so dr jackson five years from now what would she say to you that is such a good question and i told you i'm still figuring this out but i love this question the opposite of what would i tell myself five years ago which i have so you know i thought of that answer right away my future self would say to me there are bigger and better things happening for you even if that's not clear for you even if you may not have a clear goal in mind you are moving forward you are moving towards happiness and that's what you will achieve 
to embrace some of the uncertainty that you're feeling right now. Because I feel like my life has been, for myself, I've created a checklist of things of which just about everything I have achieved and I was feeling a little bit lost when all of this started and that I don't have to make a rigid, regimented checklist for the next five years. I'm gonna allow myself to kind of go with the flow. I like that because as I'm reflecting to what I hear is stop worrying. Yeah. Stop yeah. worrying. What I hope for myself and what I hope for you is that you're in a position where you can actually hear that now. I think that's like a great summation of what my five years myself is saying to myself five years from now, I might have to steal that, but that summarized, I think, very well, just the sentiment, the message that I'm trying to give myself. Stop worrying, like things are going to be okay. You don't have to control every single detail of your life. Because I, you know, by exerting that control, I think we feel power, but then when something goes wrong, it wreaks the most havoc and I think I've had a harder time adjusting when things don't go, you know, the way I had foreseen them, because then it feels like something bad's happening. And that's not necessarily true. You know, like this whole experience with cancer, cancer is not good, right? That's obvious. Cancer is bad. It's awful. It's the worst. I don't wish it upon anybody. But I have grown so much as an individual through this experience, and I have gained so much more than I could have ever realized. And this is, it's turned into an overall, I don't want to say positive experience, an overall growth, I think, from this experience. So, yeah, I do like that. I think I'm telling myself not to worry. For you, for us to be part of a process of elevating and amplifying our stories, it matters a lot. Like, I wish that I could listen to your story when I was going through my thing a couple of years ago. And so I just, yep. Yeah, I hope that this matters. I know that this will matter to somebody somewhere at some point in their own process. And that is my hope with, you know, being a part of this podcast, which I am so grateful for, for that exact reason. I like that Amplify and Elevate because when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I na naively believe that Indian women do not get breast cancer, which is so far from the truth. Call me stupid, but I literally had no idea. I had never seen, even throughout all the patients that I've seen with breast cancer, I have not seen a single Indian woman or ever cared for a single Indian woman with breast cancer. And I thought I was an exception, which I am not. I am actually a truth. And that's what I want people to know. And it's not to be fearful. It's just to be aware of the truth, to be cognizant of your bodies, to advocate for yourself. Those are all things. And there's a whole community of women and people like us, just people affected by cancer. We understand. We are here for you. We will always be here for you. So it's just like very easy to talk to you. And I think, um, that could be surprising for people um, when they talk to like serious doctors. Like you are not messing around when you're like, I'm gonna be a physician. So I think, you know, people feel like 
maybe you're not relatable or you make this assumption like because you have this position that you you're not a person who also navigates this not just through a medical lens but with your family and and your life and your parents like you are a full person you know yeah it's really it's interesting because i feel like i as you said that i was just thinking i i think i'm learning that myself this year honestly right like my identity up until now has been ear doctor like mom and i love those identities but just like cancer cancer does not define us it is a part of who i am and i'm learning now i have the time i have the circumstance to like learn about myself like really like stupid stuff like what do you like or what do you not like or just I've never had the time or I've never given it the priority or attention that I'm giving it now. And this has all allowed me to do that. And I did, you know, I told my husband before I started all this social media stuff, like, you know, it's not for the followers. It's not for any of this. Actually, the goal, you know, aside from educating and empowering and connecting with other people, like this has to benefit me in some way. You know, like I, I have to get something out of this. And as long as I continue to get something out of this, like it doesn't feel like work or a chore, as long as I continue to get something out of it and I feel it's positive, it's worth it. Um, and I do, I hope, hope I break some of those barriers down because doctors can be really intimidating. And I'm yeah. sure I have done that to many people because it was all just kind of, you know, you work to get here and I am in this position and, it's part of your role, but I think medicine as a culture hopefully is shifting a little. Me as an individual, I've shifted a lot and I'm one of the more liberal, more open people in my you know, field as a younger person, a woman and of color and all that kind of stuff, but I as well have room to grow. Yeah. I want people to trust us. That's a really big yeah. thing, especially in people of color. I mean, there, I'm sure you're aware there's a long standing history. Oh yeah why and you know it's not going to happen overnight but i at least just want to be like you know there's people like me i don't i don't see patients outside the er but like there's a lot of people like me like we're here and that's why i say like i say that piece about like find a doctor that works for you because we're here you can have good care you can have that and you deserve it you just absolutely yeah and i think people find that difficult to own yeah of like shop around shop, it's okay it's okay and then also balance it like if you can so what I always tell yeah. people is listen I don't know your financial situation I know that the healthcare system in this com- country is trash within whatever you can do right advocate for yourself and yeah. try to find the right space yeah like fi- try to find the right person yeah, I, I, that's super important within your circumstances. And I as well, when I kind of say that, like shop around, I say, you know, considering your situation, I'm not assuming everybody can just afford to go to five different doctors and pick the best, right? Like it's, it's not that yeah. simple, but know that you can and that it's okay to do so. Like, I think I also didn't really think about it, you know, like, oh no, you get a doctor and that's your doctor. Like that's the one you get, they're covered by your insurance. like you can be with somebody for 20 years and go pick somebody else. It's what you want, right? Like you're yeah. a consumer of healthcare. You actually have a lot of rights. Um, it's your body, it's your health, mm-hmm. like all of that stuff. The, the power is actually in 
the patient. And I see that from the physician perspective as well. Like there's cases where I'll be like, oh, you know, I wish X, Y, and Z had happened, but this person made these decisions, but that is their life, right? Like I am not here to control anybody. My job is to make recommendations based off my expertise. And it's the patient's, you know, responsibility and power to accept, modify, do whatever they want to do with that information, whatever they choose to or not to do with that information. And I also have to accept that myself, you know, so I think coming to grips with that is a little challenging, but, but that's their right. Yeah, that's why medical literacy is so important to be able to not only navigate conversations with doctors, but to be in that like co-decision making process. Yes. Like the first surgeon that I had a consult with, I asked like, when, when do I actually need to be in surgery? Right. Cause I could, if I didn't find this out yesterday, I would have, I would have still went snowboarding today. Like I yeah. still would have been living my life. Right. Like when do I actually need to be in surgery? And he's like, you need to be in surgery like within a week. And I'm like, how about a month? Like, can I actually, is there time for me to shop around? Like I need to, I don't know anything about the, you know, composition of a spinal cord. Like I yeah. don't even know enough to be in these conversations. Like, yeah, can I have some time here? And we had that conversation and he's just like, yes, the reason why you need to be in surgery sooner is that we cannot make you better than you are. So like the more time passes, if something happens to your spine or whatever, we can't reverse that. And so I'm like, okay, cool. I'm just going to live my life for a little bit, Mm -hmm. (laughs) go to go on my snowboarding trip in Europe and try to see if I can make the best decisions. And in that time, like I found the right surgeon to do my surgery. Like that first surgeon I talked to, his approach was okay, but it wasn't the right approach for what I actually needed. Mm -hmm. And he had only done, I think, four of that type of surgery within that year. And the surgeon that I end up going to does like over a hundred of them. Like he is the guy. So important. Yeah. And that's unlike, you know, people put out lists of things to ask your surgeon or things to ask your doctor. Like it's, it, it may feel uncomfortable to ask some of those questions. I, I, I even have anxiety, like asking a surgeon, like, wait, how many of these procedures have you done? Yes. Right? But that's an extremely <laughs> valid, relevant question that if you are considering it, you absolutely deserve the answer to that question. If it's going to help you with your decision-making, like you ask away. I tell patients that all the time, you know, like time allowing, ask away. Like if you have those questions and I can provide an answer, that's what I'm here for. You know, I don't have to like the questions. That's irrelevant. Yeah. But I am that source of knowledge. Ask me the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and different steps in your process too. Like when I was talking to Erica for season one of the podcast, mm-hmm. she, you know, spoke briefly about like shopping around to find the right person to do her reconstruction. Yeah. And like trying to figure out what was important to her around like, you know, saving the nipple and this and that, yeah. like what type of mastectomy experience did she want to have? And taking some ownership in your decision-making on that. Yeah. No, it's well within your right to do these things and you should. And if you don't want to, that's fine. There were certain aspects of my care. I know where I was just like completely release control. Well, you know, as you're getting the anesthesia and the operation. Right, right. (laughs) 
Mina, you just gotta let this go. <laughs> like, I remember the night before my surgery, uh, my uh-huh. mastectomy, I was like super anxious and, you know, understandably, I was like, you know, you're nervous, you've never had surgery, and um, so that's normal, it's a big surgery, whatever. But then I kind of did this like, like a little thought work of like, like just get inside, like what is the reason behind this, right? It's, it actually wasn't even the anxiety of the surgery. It's like, I felt this pressure as if I was operating on myself and thinking like, you have to rest up for, you know, this grueling seven hour procedure, you're gonna be scrubbed in. And I was like picturing like the incisions and the suturing and the removal, you know? And then I was like, wait, you're not doing that. That's the surgeon's job, right? All you have to do is lay on the table and stay alive, right? Like, like obviously. So why am I stressing out about the technicalities of like, you know, it just, once I got down to that, I was like, all right, so let that go. Now that I know what that's about, like my job here is actually very easy. Their job is hard. They're trained. She's excellent. You trust her. Let her do that. Don't worry about all that stuff. (laughs) So like, I think there was there for me, like the night before there was that moment of release where like, I actually don't have to do anything tomorrow. I just need yes. to show up with a clean yes. body. Yes. Put that solution on my yep. skin. Like they told me to, and I'm just, they're doing everything. Yes. And there is this moment of peace where I was just imagining like going under and just not waking up. Yeah. Like, what if I just never woke up and just being okay with that. I just, I just reached this point where it's like, I can't do anything. I just, I can't do anything. So it is what it is. Mm -hmm. I would like to wake up. (laughs) I would like to be able to move my body and feel my body. And we'll just see what happens on the other side. Yeah. I think, I think that's, it's, um, what you said was like really important the like I can't do anything else or you know like I can't do anything in this moment to change what's happening like it is yeah. what it is and it, like on the surface it sounds so disempowering but it's actually like such a relief of like yes. it actually ends up being empowering of like I have done all the things I can control and now I have to just relieve it like relieve this stress that I'm putting on myself of something that I no longer have control over it's just like, you know, this burden on your shoulders until you realize like, wait, it's going to go how it goes. Like, yeah, like you're, you know, like I'm okay with that. I've done all the things I can do. Whatever's coming, I can handle it. It's just such a relief. And I agree. I walked in like, you know, my job's the easy job. I'm just going to lay on the table. Why am I stressing? I'm not the med student that has to put in my Foley. Like I used to be that med student putting in all the Foley catheters in the OR. I don't even have to do that. I feel sorry for that med student. It's so, I, yeah, you know, it's so funny. I was so anxious about the catheter. I was like, oh my yeah. God, I wouldn't have a catheter. Like it just was so gross to me because I've seen people with catheters and I'm like, ill. Um, that's like connected to you. Yeah. But they're like, oh, we do all of that when you're sleeping. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> so- which is awesome, which is so great. I know they gave me a heads up because I wasn't expecting the catheter. I'm yeah. glad they gave me a heads up and yeah, prefaced by, you know, we'll do it once you're asleep. And I was like, thank you. Yeah, I do really appreciate that. Like, even though the, like the, even the um, like little happy juice cocktail, they gave me a little Versed fentanyl as I was rolling back. I was like, you know, I really appreciate that. Like, 
who's, you know, I don't want to be like, I feel like also when you're a doctor and you're like, oh, I'm anxious, I need some meds, like that, I just feel like I would be judged or people would just think it's suspicious. And so it was really nice. They said, we give it to everybody. So I was like, okay, that's really helpful. Anybody rolling into the OR is going to have a little, you know, like your heart rate goes up a little bit. You know, what was comforting for me. Um, I don't know if this happened at your surgery, but they had this little old lady, bless her heart. It was like the hospital chaplain. And like when they bring the chaplain in before you go under, I'm like, oh, this is serious. Yeah. <laughs> so like we had a whole thing, but what really put me at ease, one, I had six, seven family members there. Everybody was wearing the tumor swag. I felt so supported. And one of the nurses, the OR nurses came in and it was a black woman and she had like a kente head wrap thing. And I was like, you, yeah, you. I want you, I'm talking to you individually to make sure that they don't leave cotton swabs in my spine. <laughs> she was like, that is my job. Like, yeah. Don't worry, I got you. And so to see a black woman with like this Kente thing, mm-hmm. I felt so affirmed. Mm-hmm. And then the woman who rolled me into the OR was this Latinx woman. And mm-hmm. I like, that meant a lot to me too. Yeah. And that's why I'm like so glad that I did my surgery in New York versus Seattle because I was just surrounded by so many women of color. Yeah. And And it it makes a difference. That makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's like something about like, you know, you don't want to judge people on appearances or something, but you know, like that it's, and it's not the same. It's just, but seeing somebody that you can recognize or that you reckon with that looks like like literally just looks like you there's just a different level of understanding of like they're gonna have my back you know hopefully not that someone would do anything malicious but like we just look out for each other a little bit more or just in a in a way that I don't want to say non-colored but (laughs) these white people out here yeah it's okay they're white people they're white people trying to be pc and i'm making up like some like not nice no you know it's so funny that like they will say white people and non-white people it's just like well we don't say non-man to describe women that's true true. and so like not describing people by what they're not that's true if i can say black people latinx folks indian folks like we should also be able to say white people. Yeah, I think it's hard because anytime we think about white folks as a collective, like when you just see like white people organizing together, you're just like, so am I going to die today? Like what's happening? <laughs> like, <laughs> Right? Uh, Seriously. I just, I think the white supremacist group, like what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think it just matters so much to just know other women of color who are navigating this. And I think a lot of times people think that if you come from a sense of like economic privilege or academic privilege or medical literacy privilege, that things are easier for you. Mm -hmm. And that is in some cases true, in a lot of cases not true because you're Mm -hmm. still a person trying to navigate some of the hardest moments of your life. Yeah, and it does, cancer does not discriminate like socioeconomic status, color, age, gender, your personal professional identity. It's coming for you. No. <laughs> Black Cancer is created, edited, and produced by me, Jodi Ann. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson, for sharing your story. 
to make sure that other black cancer stories become center to how we talk about cancer. Rate, subscribe, you know what to do. Check us out online at blackcancer.co and on Instagram at underscore black underscore cancer. You can find Dr. Jackson there too at Dr. Kavita Jackson. Trauma comes with endless wisdom for ourselves and those around us. Tell someone you know about black cancer. What do you think about like cancer swag? It's a lot of things. Well, so when October started and I had just gone into remission and it was like pink overload, I felt this obligation, like my first experience, right? Ever. I've never thought about it. Like this obligation of like, I got to buy everything that's pink and everything that's supporting breast cancer. Like now that's me. So I have to buy it all and support people. And honestly, um, the pink is not my favorite, like the pink as a color itself. There's no disrespect to the ribbon. It's just the pink is not my favorite. So I'm like, okay, I'm buying all this stuff that I don't actually really want, <laughs> you know? And then I learned about pink washing actually from somebody on Instagram. And I was just like, oh, I had no idea. Like I never oh. thought about these things. Of, talk to me, you know, talk to me about pink washing. So pink washing, the concept that um, companies or brands um, use the pink pink breast cancer ribbon or breast cancer awareness, the name of that, um, and saying that they're supporting things is part of their marketing strategy. Um, and possibly not actually supporting any sort of organization or nonprofit or research. And so, you know, you buy a product thinking or kind of assuming that a portion is being shared um, with a research organization or something and it's not, um, or they give like a fraction, you know, a, a percentage that it's like negligible and you'd do better just donating yourself. So just to be mindful of what I was buying, what people said the money was going towards and, you know, just digging on what I support yeah it's so funny i boycott kind of those types of things you remember those yogurt lid things mm -hmm. where people were so this was when i was an undergrad and i had this thing i was a resident assistant mm -hmm. and so i was like asking all my residents to you know take these lids and i'll collect them and i'll send them in and then as i kept looking at these lids all the time it says like in the fine print that for every lid, they'll donate, I don't know, a couple cents, but up to, let's say $100,000 or a million dollars, whatever it is. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. If y'all have the capacity to donate a million dollars, donate the million dollars. Yeah. Why am I sending you um, aluminum and foil, <laughs> right? And yeah. then, or make it limitless. If people are just like buying this stuff, then that should increase your capacity to donate yeah like i don't understand why you know if more people buy it then uh, you have more proceeds of which a portion yeah like why is there a limit i guess yeah so anytime i see that stuff where it's like we'll donate up to 10 million dollars i'm like no limitless or just limitless, give the 10 yeah. million dollars but yeah pink washing is interesting i remember when i was um this is like my first trip unsupervised by a medical professional when I was at Sloan Kettering and my family was with me and I had a walker and so I was walking into the gift shop which I was like you don't think 
broken people come to this gift shop. This is not accessible. Like these aisles are too small for my walker. <laughs> They're always so crowded. <laughs> yes. So this is me with my walker and like, yes. <laughs> trying to walk through the gift shop. And they had all these like color ribbons for different types of cancer. And I was like, oh, okay, what's my color? And I just like, I want blue, which is like, mm -hmm. that's not how, that's not yeah. how this works, right? Like <laughs> you, you don't get, get to pick. <laughs> So then I saw one, I think blue is like for cervical cancer. And mm -hmm. I was like, yes, because my tumor was at my cervical spine. And I'm like, oh, that's not what they mean when <laughs> they say cervical <laughs> cancer. They're like, wait, I don't get a ribbon? <laughs> yeah. Wait, so you don't have a ribbon? I don't think there's, I don't think I have a ribbon, but it's funny to be both critical of the ribbon, like, yeah. fuck these ribbons. And then also like, I don't have a ribbon. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And like, at first I was like, I felt really guilty about how I felt like, oh no, you should be unanimously supporting this pink ribbon. But what if you don't like the pink ribbon? And I don't mean disrespect to the pink and all that, you know, and like people say like pink sister and like stuff like that. And I don't want to be like, like, I don't like pink. You know, it, that's like not even the point. You know, yeah. like it's, we relate and we're having a relationship and conversation and that's fine. It has nothing to do with pink if we don't want it to. Yeah. And you know, with all this merch stuff, I got really excited actually around October. I was like, I'm going to start designing a bunch of merch, like cancer merch, right? Like yes. I just got real excited to do it. I did all these designs about like MetaViber, Thriver, and try to empower. And I'm glad I never actually, I, I didn't go all the way through, you know, cause I was like, you know, think about it and what, what is your plan here? Um, and then I kind of felt a little differently about it. Like once we got through October or, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I just started to think a little critically, like what are my motivations behind that? Like, what am I, I don't know. I kind of just let that go. Yeah, I actually, I designed my tumor swag. Um, mm -hmm. I had this motto that kind of helped me through my process. And I think it became something that people could rally around. And as I was designing it, I was like, I want to make something that is definitely about my cancer situation, but also just a cool workout shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I made all the, these designs um, that said strong in, stronger out. Mm -hmm. like hoodies like and t-shirts and like everyone who was I call my tumor troop and so my whole tumor troop like people were posting photos of it and yeah. all that so that was really cool yeah. and then I had an MRI scan of my brain because once you have a tumor anywhere in your spinal cord they have to check the whole thing yeah so I had these brain scans and I was like what like it was just a really interesting design yeah and so I put They're it on a beautiful. tote I, I right mm -hmm. right so I put yeah. it on a tote I put on a tote bag oh that's awesome but that's so cool you know like very unique it's very personal actually like but most people looking at it you know are not going to understand the whole thing I mean they're going to be like oh that looks so cool it actually is like a conversation starter. Yeah. It's like, that's, uh, so did you brain. do it? Did you print those? I did. I print those. I awesome. sold a bunch of them. Um, it's weird. Cause like, I see them in the world sometimes when I like meet up with friends and stuff and they're like, yeah. Oh, I just actually really like this bag or like, this is one of my favorite workout shirts or whatever. And it, I think it's like, you know, as we talk about how people support us, um, finding ways that feel accessible for people who might find it difficult to navigate these types of issues and so maybe they can't 
or don't feel comfortable like asking you about your cancer story but Mm -hmm. y'all could talk about tumor swag you know (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's what I mean it's like a conversation starter um yeah and then you have people that have like the ribbons like tattooed on themselves and I feel like that's like an open like you're welcoming a conversation I think and for me it's like okay let's talk about it you know yeah I find it hard if someone like had a visible tattoo and you asked them about it and they got annoyed. It's like, yes, I bro, agree. you could have put that somewhere else. Yeah. You yeah, maybe, talk. I, yeah, I agree. But the swag stuff is interesting. I had people like send me some swag and, you know, it's like, I guess it just depends on my mood. It's still a little up and down sometimes like a, you know, like, I don't want, I don't want to wear this. All. Like I, like, it's like you're wearing a label, you know? Like, yeah. like I have this shirt. I actually love it. I think I can't remember now what it says. It says like wife, mom, fighter, something like that. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like I yeah. have those things. But some days I'm just like, I don't, I don't feel like giving that label out. You know, like yeah, everything about me on the shirt that I'm wearing because it's more than that. Yeah. Or you know, we should make swag with all the things that we don't want people to say to us. Like. Oh you know, we just posted something on black cancer. We're posting something on Instagram saying that, you know, my mastectomy is not a boob job. It's so funny because (laughs) I I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but I'm working on, um, for my social media, just like a quick, there's a lot of these, but my version of like, you know, five things not to say to someone who has cancer or some, and you know, boob jobs, one of them where it's like one of those, like, it's so obvious. I think you know, you should know better, but I'm going to say it here. And then I want to give alternatives of like, you know, try this instead. But I got the boob job one. And it's funny because I honestly myself, like, believe that for quite a while. You know, I was like, oh, you're right. Like, I am kind of getting a boob job. And especially because I was, I've always had really large uh, a very large chest since like age 12, <laughs> like when I yeah. started, you know, my period. And so that, that's interesting from, you know, just as a woman and as a young girl and as you, you know, whatever interactions with society. So my plan was when I was done having kids that I was going to have a reduction. Like that was yeah. my long-term plan. And I kind of had that opportunity, you know, with the mastectomy to size down and all that kind of stuff. And so I did for a while, you know, it's kind of like two birds or I am getting kind of a free boob job in a sense, like, hey, you're getting something you wanted. And there's just like that give and take of like, but I wouldn't have chosen to do it this way <laughs> if I had yeah. it. And, and anybody that says free, I really challenge them, like define free, right? It's not just about money. Like consider the things that we have given up in, in various types of surgery, right? Like it's just, it's not free. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. And, and I think it's, it's really nuanced and there are opportunities in some of our worst traumas for, you know, to try to get some of the things that we want. Like this is not similar at all, but I'm going to start talking about it anyway. (laughs) But, um, so I have a handicap pass for my car Mm -hmm. because part of my, um, surgery paralyzed me and I like, didn't know what my situation would be around driving or, you know, I can drive places, but then walking can be difficult in certain situations. And so I was like, I'm going to get a handicap pass. Like I have a disability. Here's my opportunity to not have to pay for public parking for five years. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm hanging out with my friend 
And I was like, oh yeah, let's go downtown. So I wanted to go to some event. And they're like, I'm not, I don't want to pay to park. And I'm like, oh, I don't pay to park. And then my friend's like, man, maybe that was kind of worth it. And I'm like, no, bro. No, it's- no, no, no. Okay, you didn't have to take it there. And, it, you know, I'm sure that I didn't, like, think all the way, th- like, I'm, I feel like the words left their mouth, and I hope they thought twice about that. <laughs> no. I'm like, oh, it. that's great. I'm like, I don't think I would want to be paralyzed and, like, be suffering physically just so I don't have to pay for parking. For this perk. Right. Yeah. But, but also you, I do enjoy it. I yeah, do yeah, not, yeah, I do enjoy I, it. I feel you're trying to see the positive of the situation, right? And I think that's what I was as well. Like, hey, at least you're getting this thing that you wanted in a slightly different way. Oh, so that was one of my silver linings. Now I remember we were talking about this last time and I was like, I had all these silver linings of which I could only think of one, which was tied yeah. with my kids. But you know, I got something that I wanted that I didn't see myself getting towards, um, you know, within the next uh, year or anything. Um, so how yeah. do you be happy about that? But I, you know, but, but it's not worth it to have gone Maybe it is worth it to have gone through. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's like, it's like, it is what it is. This is yeah. how it happened, you know? Um, and I think your case is really interesting because I think when people think about boob jobs, they think about augmentation. Yeah. Um, and like, oh yes, you guys have these like, you know, perky new girls sitting on your chest and you're like, no, I've had that since I was 12. So trying to go down. <laughs> yeah. Trying to go down. Like the, op- no one have, has ever understood that of the trying to go down you're right because mo- the majority of people are trying to go up yeah it's like well um my back hurts so yeah like my back hurts <laughs> my neck hurts my shoulder hurts my clothes don't fit I've, I've already i've like stocked up on some really nice bras afterwards like bras that i've never ever been able to wear because yeah right oh yes this, i'm like new tops and stuff i'm like okay this is finally like semi-flattering or like i can wear something like this now yeah that happened to me when I was um, marathon running for a bit and I went from a D to a C mm-hmm. and people like, oh, you know, people want D cups or whatever. And I'm like, oh, do you know that I can fit my bathing suit tops now? <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. I'm not like diving into a pool without falling out of my chest. Like that's yeah. great. 